Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. That plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Bottoming, the podcast about LGBTQ mental health, rock bottoming, and beyond. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at BottomingPod or visit BottomingPodcast.com for more content relating to each episode. We've also added a support page to direct you to the right place if you're struggling or need someone to talk to. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. Hello, I'm Matthew. And I'm Brendan, and our pronouns are he and him. It's the start of Pride Month. It is the start of Pride Month. It is June. It is Pride Month. Yeah. Click, clack, 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 clack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got five episodes in total coming your way. It's a long month. Good for you, it's bad for your bank account. Yeah. This episode is with Jason Okendaya and Mark Thompson of Black and Gay Back in the Day. Mm-hmm. And we also have Maud Goba. Um, who is chair of UK Black Pride and also national manager of Micro Rainbow. So we're going to be speaking to all of those very shortly. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do with this Pride Month weekly series is speak to a range of guests, some that we've had, um, we've had their interviews locked away for a little while now, some that we've had on our list for quite some time, explore different, different areas of the community and also speak to different prides as well that are going on. See what they're up to, see what people can do to engage, support, support, get involved. And yeah, we're just really, really thrilled that everyone managed to find some time to speak to us. Very, very grateful. So coming up this month, we've got Charlie Craggs and London Trans Pride. Cherry Valentine, Drag Race UK Season 2 fame um, and Traveller Pride. 
Sharon Daliwell, who is of Burnt Roti and Middlesex Pride. And we also speak to someone from um, the AIDS Memorial Instagram account and AIDS Memory UK. If that's not enough, we've made, well, I'm very proud, <laughs> very proud of this one. This is all you, honey. I've made a Pride playlist um, on Spotify. You can find that link in the, in the usual place in our bio. Gorgeous LGBTQ artists. Um, and someone else. Yeah, also made the exception. Um, there's some Robin tracks in there too. I have given her the honorary badge, so she's allowed in. I've made a um, podcast playlist, which might not be as exciting to some people, but it's exciting to me. There's some really, really good podcasts on there. The likes of the Two Twos podcast, Two Scoops. We've got some queer talk. We've got Homo Sapiens. Call Me Mother. The Logbooks and many others. And each of those playlists will be updated weekly for the month. Mm. And then we'll see what happens after after yeah. June. Maybe if I'm calling as a DJ. <laughs> I think you can add that to your bio now. Yeah. We've also been secretly working away on a little bit of a... A project. Project. That's mm-hmm. a good word for it. So we're really, really, really excited to announce actually that this month we're working with Joe Malone London. As Bernard said, we've been working with them for a couple of months now behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And we've been asked to guest edit their internal communications for the month. So every week this month... Mm-hmm. The gorgeous employees um, of Joe Malone <laughs> are going to be getting our um, beautifully designed newsletter, thanks mm-hmm, to Brendan, mm-hmm. um, in the inboxes. And we're going to take each week to kind of discuss a new topic, shining a light on different areas of the community, whether it's mental health, whether it's kind of general state of the world, LGBTQ mm-hmm. rights. And yeah, just kind of having a really lovely time Yeah, with that. Really, really grateful to have been asked, actually. I think it's really nice that a company is taking the time to put resources into the further development of their staff mm-hmm. internally and not just for an external you know stamp mark that this is first and foremost for their employees and, mm-hmm. and not for the uk press which mm-hmm. is i think is a, a real bonus yeah i mean one of the things that kind of i know we've in the in the past spoke a lot about authenticity we've also spoke a lot about um our personal experiences in different in different workplaces that we've been in mm. But one of the things that kind of tick boxes um, is knowing some of the work Joe Malone do kind of behind the scenes. Joe Malone are really committed to supporting um, mental health and the profoundly restorative effect that nature has for those um, living with painful personal challenges. For anyone that kind of saw any of the Mental Health Awareness Week stuff this year, you um, will have seen that the theme of the 2021 campaign was actually nature and the environment as well, which kind of ties in really, really nicely. We, we speak about this a lot as well in terms of statistics, but one in four people um, will be affected by mental health problems in their lifetime. It is still underfunded in all sorts of areas and often unacknowledged as well. Um, and Joe Malone London are eager to break that taboo. So one of the things, um, I actually wasn't aware of this at all. The brand support of mental health began back in 2012. They now support 11 charitable partners and 12 individual projects in both the UK and North America who provide services across all different stages and aspects of mental health. So kind of awareness, prevention, treatment and support. And it's just really great to see an organisation actually kind of committed to making making positive change and, mm. and speaking about that sort of stuff internally and externally. Back to why we're here today, this first episode. Our interview with Jason and Mark. Mm-hmm. 
So if you have a Instagram account, I'm sure you will have come across this. And if you don't, you get need to on get on it and follow them. Yeah. They launched at the very start of LGBT History Month in February. We were gutted that we couldn't get them on at the time because mm-hmm. we'd already organised all of our interviews. Yeah. Um, but obviously, really pleased that they can kick off our Pride Month. Jason and Mark are so lovely and it was really great to chat to them and learn more about their uh, relationship, actually, and the importance of intergenerational relationships. Mm-hmm. So we'll hand it over to them. I'm Mark Thompson. My pronouns are he and him. My name's Jason Okendaya, and my pronouns are he and him. So the premise behind Black and Gay back in the day was that Mark and I wanted to kind of capture the textures and sensibilities of black gay life in Britain pre-2000, so pre an age where everyone was capturing things on their phones, in pre an age where there was social media. The photographs and material that we upload are taken on disposable cameras, they're very candid, or some of them are pieces of professional photography um, that are quite intimate. And what matters most is that they tend to show, you know, black queer people in sociality with each other. It doesn't show you know a black queer person being marginalized within the white queer space which actually isn't that true to what was actually happening at the time i mean mark regularly tells me about the kind of all black gay house parties and black gay clubs he went to as a young person and it sounds like you know, the kind of spaces that he had were even more populous than the spaces that i enjoy now and so i really wanted to be able to like share this you know i think it it's twofold it's nice for people my age to be able to see it um and witness what was going on before and to say you know what we're doing now isn't anything new it just continues on with with long-standing traditions and cultures already and also for people of mark's generation and older and a bit younger to be able to look back and also share their experiences and remember people as well because i mean some of the people who we post are people who have passed away and in some cases in the comment section people you know sharing their memories of an old lover an old friend and what they reminded them of the aim for that was kind of multifold it was also to promote intergenerational conversations because i always have really wonderful conversations with mark and lots of other men as well but i also know that not every black queer person has this i mean i remember after it's a sin um premiere there was lots of social media discourse about how like you know oh we don't have any elders because they've all been wiped out mm-hmm. by aids it's like that's not really true yeah you know, like, people live through the aids crisis but there were also so many survivors and so many of them live up your own and they have lots of wonderful and brilliant stories and you know mark is just one person mm-hmm. um who survived and has a wonderful story to tell so i kind of wanted to counter some of the pessimism and some of the ventriloquizing that to say actually there are people here you can speak to them and they have really rich stories and really rich lives and also they still have really rich lives as well mm-hmm. it's not that you know they were on it back in the day and now they've kind of just you know fucked off somewhere and retired like i think one of the eldest activists i know ted brown who's 71 i should call him uncle ted out of respect (laughs) he's still going he's more active than i am Mm -hmm. so um yeah that was really the aim for the archive for me at least and i mean in addition to that we wanted to celebrate life we want to celebrate the lives of ordinary people because way too often we look especially during lgbt history Month and black history month we look to the states or we celebrate particular icons and names Mm -hmm. jason and i were really really committed to Telling the stories of just ordinary folk just doing ordinary things. So partying, falling in love, socialising, going to groups. Those things that we never really see about our life. And we don't necessarily see across queer life. It's always the big names, the big celebrities. And we wanted to capture that and put that back out into the world 
as Jason has said, for a younger generation to understand what came before, but for an older generation to be reminded to reconnect with the past as well, and hopefully to start a dialogue between the generations. So how did the two of you originally meet and kind of what led to the creation of the project? Yeah, so I was in my final year of university and I was writing a dissertation looking at um, black gay men in the UK and HIV rates and sexual health and things like that. And, you know, I had, didn't know Mark properly then, but I, I'm not sure if someone recommended him to me or if I just found him myself online. But either way, I kind of thought, OK, this guy is doing the work and has been doing the work for a lot of time. So, you know, I shot him an email and I was also very intimidated by him at first. And I thought, this guy doesn't like me. Um, <laughs> I think it was mostly because I got something about him wrong because I was quite clearly copying and pasting emails and forgot to change the detail. <laughs> and uh, he picked up on that. <laughs> and I felt, you know, yeah, a little scared, but... After that, I think I just started to ask you more questions beyond just the work. I didn't really want to leave it as, you know, well, I've gotten my first class, so goodbye. I wanted to actually, like, continue a relationship with Mark. And I started to learn more about him, his life, and I became interested in working with him in that capacity and getting to know more about him and also about his friends as well, because, you know, he's not the only other black gay man living in Brixton. And I wanted to um, get to know more. And Mark can pick up from that, I guess. And I think, you know, what was really special was what, what drew me to Jason was his curiosity about life, about black queer life, and then his absolute determination and commitment to telling that story and to being a, a torchbearer for our community and our history. Because, you know, way too often, you know, so many people are living in the present and think that black queer life or queer life is just today or the latest Instagram post or, you know, the latest headline. And Jason wanted to find out more, was interested in history, wanted to tell that story. And as he said, didn't want to just connect with me because I was a, you know, a name or I had a profile. He really wanted to dig deep into those mm. men and women who we don't see at all. And that, for me, is really, really important in the work that we do. So I love that about him, that he was able to kind of draw that out. And it's made me really curious as well, again, you know, he's ignited something in me for me to get back out there and find out what the tales were and how we can tell them and to bring some of my, my peers back into the room because they mm -hmm. haven't been for so long. And I think sometimes it's nice that, you know, with the other people who I speak to as well, I might message Mark and be like, did you know about this? And he'll be like, he didn't know about it either. So it's also nice to kind of tell school Mark a bit on his own history um, too, <laughs> um, from the things I learned. And I think that it, it's also been lovely that, you know, when I've met other people, so for example, just um, this week I met one of Mark's other friends called Dennis Carney, who I was interviewing for um, a different piece um, in The Guardian, which is coming up. And I was speaking and he was like, you really know your, you've done your research, you really know your history because I was saying names, locations, dates to him. And it was stuff that even he himself was struggling to remember. So it's almost... It, it's kind of weird that I've almost, I'm not quite becoming like an expert because, you know, I don't know everything yet, but I've come quite well versed in the kind mm. of life that Mark and his peers were living. And it's been nice to be able to kind of speak to them in those terms and actually know what I'm talking about. I feel like I'm developing a familiarity um, with the kind of setting that they lived in and also being able to draw up the differences between, you know, their experiences and mine and the kind of context they were living in, the kind of context that I live in. So in the Guardian article you both wrote, Back in March, uh, you highlight a number of images that appear in the archive, beginning with the image of Mark and his first love, Brad. Each of these images acts almost like a piece of an everlasting puzzle and showcases a multitude of characters. How do you feel the archive challenges preconceived ideas about what it means to be black and gay? 
I mean, I think, first of all, just by simply showing us that we existed, because so many people think that, you know, black queer history started in, you know, the start of the of this millennium. So I think just that alone is one of the most powerful things that we demonstrate. But then it also shows us that in spite of all of the things that were going on in, in our lives as black people and in the lives of, of us as black queer people, so Section 28, the AIDS epidemic, all of these other big societal things that we were still getting on with our lives and trying to live them authentically and as richly as possible. So I think that that's another of the most powerful things that you've done. I think that something that I find particularly important as well, I mean, you speak about, you know, what preconceived notions people have of black queer life. Where people do have certain notions, they, as I said before, imagine us as kind of like marginalised in our own spaces and marginalised in our own stories. So the narrative is always about, you know, racism within the gay community and it as this kind of like omnipresence. But, you know, every time I actually speak to some of these older black gay men, they're kind of like, I mean, yeah, the white is racist, but I didn't hang out with them. Um, I remember I've had some fun stories of, you know, like someone being with two black men being together and a white guy really trying to like touch them up, feed them up and then them giving them a clip around the ears or something. And I think, you know, those are interesting stories because all that we ever get are these kind of narratives of, you know, the black guy who's on the side or kind of, you know, begging for acceptance within this white group. And I, I just don't think that was reality. I mean, that's not the reality in my life. And that wasn't the reality of men's lives 40 years ago either. And there's a book which is coming out in May um, by Sarah Shulman called Let the Record Show. And I haven't actually read it yet, but I've read a kind of review of it. And the book is charts, you know, the history of ACT UP um, in America mm -hmm. and the different branches of it. And what's said is that one of the most beautiful revelations of the book is that even though this was such a devastating time, for some of the men who lived through it, they had the time of their lives mm. um, through the AIDS crisis. They had the time of their lives. They were having fun. They were having sex. They were having full and rich lives. And I think sometimes people view the AIDS crisis as, you know, queer people going under shelter and never seeing each other again. I mean, I remember, I think this was a few years ago now, but Frank Ocean kind of came up with this um, thing called the prep party where he was imagining that, you know, what would the nightlife scene have looked like if the AIDS crisis didn't happen? And it's like, actually, a lot of nightlife came out of the AIDS crisis and mm. a lot of community and a lot of organising. So this kind of technological determinism idea that, you know, a singular um, pill and medication would have made everyone okay, made everyone start socialising again, ignores the fact that so much community building and so much fun mm. and joy, you know, came out of these times. And I think that these photographs, not all of these photographs are related to the AIDS crisis or even take place during them. Um, and not all of the photographs are of people who have lived with HIV and, and, you know, not all of the photographs are even, you know, gay men or trans people who were worse affected by HIV. Um, but it just shows that there were, there were fun lives and people had a great time. And it's, it's wonderful to see that and to share that and to kind of shed that the connection that we have with our, you know, our ancestors in a sense is not necessarily shared tragedy. It's actually mm -hmm. shared joy and shared enthusiasm and shared enjoyment. I mean, I think you'll even notice while you're catching that, that, I mean, on there, we only have one picture of protest and that was quite deliberate that we wanted to have stuff which was celebrated, which showed love, which showed <clears> relationship because <throat> all too often the narrative is where I go on the streets or we're in hiding. Somewhere. Mm -hmm. So I think that the fact that it is really, really joyful throughout and loving is mm -hmm. really important because we don't see that often enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, rightfully so. Like the the response was incredible, and it grew uh, incredibly fast as well on Instagram. I kind of lost count, especially during February, how many articles there were. How has it been for both of you engaging with so many different people um, and their stories in this way? 
especially knowing that you're creating the archive with their memories? I mean, it's been wonderful engaging with people and kind of like um, triggering different memories of different events and people for them. And it's been quite a beautiful thing. And it feels like, it almost feels like a gift that we've created um, that a lot of people can access. And, you know, we want to keep the archive up for as long as we can as well so that people can continually refer to it and return to it. Um, yeah, I think it's been quite amazing. It has been incredible. I mean, it's been overwhelming. I don't think Jason or I, the date we spoke on, Sunday, I think it was the 31st of January. I don't think either one of us imagined that within a week we would be would have been hitting up by so much press and we would have so many followers. Mm -hmm. So that's been incredible, the response and how people have felt about it. And I think that's the real thing, that people have felt something. Mm -hmm. That's really important. But there's also challenges, you know. Um, we've, we've curated and pulled together a great archive of photos and we have loads still sitting in the bank and more that we want to get. Mm -hmm. But there are issues sometimes around sharing those pictures because we, we, we request permission. We're very respectful of that. But there are still people who aren't out, mm -hmm. who aren't available, who don't want their lives shared on screen at all because friends and family. So, you know, a lot of our community is still holding, and some of our old community are still holding on to some of that internalized homophobia. Or, mm -hmm. You know, just don't want the world to know quote unquote their business yeah so again we want to continue keeping it fresh and keeping it alive but it always relies on submissions we try to be as diverse as possible to be as inclusive of different members of our community and that again has been a challenge but we're hopeful that you know it's, it's got legs and it will continue mm -hmm. so mark we actually spoke with your co-founder of blackout uk rob berkeley back in january and he spoke about the joy of witnessing new intergenerational relationships being formed through the events that were held online and in person. And equally, the archive offers a great chance for the younger generation to gain some insight into the experiences of those that came before them. Some people might not understand the importance of looking back in this way, but what do you think can be learned from the archive and the lives that populate it? Well, it's incredibly important. I mean, if, if you know, there's that old hackneyed phrase, you know, people don't know where they come from, they don't know where they're going. And I think that's part of the reason why, why we've done that. And people can learn, you know, that they, 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 they stand on the shoulders of giants. You know, these are great people that have done great things in, in mm -hmm. our community that people of Jason's generation enjoy today were hard, you know, were hard won. These were battles that we fought. And those people in many of those photographs, just by showing up, just by going to pride events, hosting parties, creating spaces for black folk, creating art that was, which was by us and for us, is was essential and that brings us to where we are today so i think those are really important lessons that you can be it you can create it and there's a really really rich history i know as a young black man growing up that i wasn't taught black history or history of my community in schools and when i did learn it it empowered me beyond belief when i understood and learned queer history that did the same thing and so i think that by looking at this and we've had messages from younger people who have said you know this is really powerful for me and it makes me just feel a couple of steps taller today and that is a great thing so there's lots that we can take away and we can learn from that so you said before about kind of like the relationship you two have got now is there anything specific that you've learned from one another related to this project specifically i've learned how to use instagram a bit <laughs> 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 what have you learned, Jason? 
Uh, well, it's difficult to it's difficult to even like summarize how much I've learned. I mean, the expansiveness of everything that I've learned and continue to learn from Mark and will learn from Mark. You know, it, it, there's so much. I think in a kind of weird way, I also realize how much has been lost as well. I think more than anything, I've learned that because I think that from some of the you know older guys that I speak to, I think sometimes they have this impression that, you know, oh, things are easier for you guys now because there's social media and, you know, people are more out and there's more visibility and there's events and things like that. But I kind of think, you know what, like, actually, so the house that Marx lives in, if you don't mind me saying, um, I believe it was through the Brixton Housing Co-op and the people who live within that house are all black gay men. And I, as much as that's wonderful, that's not something I could ever imagine happening now. A housing co-op, you know, specifically um, giving a house to, um, you know, a community that had formerly been squatted there and designating it specifically to the Black LGBT community. I mean, we have such a crisis in housing um, in the United Kingdom and we don't even know the extent of ho homelessness for Black LGBTQ youth because we don't have the statistics there. Um, so learning actually that there were certain advantages um that um, some people enjoyed before us also made me realize what we can fight for as well and what's mm -hmm. not too ambitious i mean if someone was to propose a black gay and lesbian center i probably would have thought that's too ambitious you know we don't even have a gay center you know what can we do but that existed back then yeah and it wasn't that long ago um so it kind of makes me realize that actually you know some of the things that we are now considering to be you know ambitious and to be too big they had it because they fought for it and it kind of shows that we can do this in the future we can fight for to have these things again um because i think the assumption is that you know we're building from scratch but that's not quite the truth and mm. so yeah that's been quite valuable to me to realize that you know actually there were things that these people fought for that we can also fight for um in our own circumstances mm -hmm. And I think that I've learned, I've learned and I've had stuff reaffirmed. So I've learned that there is, there is a hunger for our history out there. And I think that I didn't recognize that before, just by, you know, the amount of people that have engaged with mm -hmm. us and, you know, the, the media coverage that we've got. So I think that's definitely been a learning for me. But it's reaffirmed that my community is pretty damn amazing, you know, and in the past and the present. And there are some amazing people who make up that community in spite of, so many things and it's been it's really lovely to be reminded of that history because as jason said you know there's some of it that i completely forgotten and also you know as a, a man in his 50s going back to some of that time can be triggering and it can be upsetting because it wasn't always a walk in the park but it's been nice to also be reminded of those joyful moments that we shared friendships that we had you know jason and i spoke the other day and we were kind of chatting about how how some of us don't get on anymore. But then when I reflected on it and Jason and I spoke, he was like, no, well, you know, we've got to remember that times are really tough for us. And as queer people, we carry a lot of baggage and we bring that into our relationships with one another, which means that sometimes we can be bitchy, we can be shady. So it was nice to be reminded that there was a time when we were young, we were vibrant and those things didn't matter. But, you know, life gets in the way. Mm. But I hope it reconnects many of us, which I think it's doing. So Jason, recently you announced um, your first book, Revolutionary Acts, which aims to lift black British gay history out of obscurity. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit more about the book and what we can expect from it? I had been, you know, obviously I had a long time interest in Mark's story and the story of other people. And I, one evening kind of um, called Mark and I was like, 
I've just got an illustrator agent out of nowhere and um, we've been thinking through about, you know, the kind of work that um, we want to do. And I asked him, what do you think about me writing a book about you and some of the people that you know in Brixton about black gay life and making it, you know, historical and like in conversation with all these people? And the reason I called Mark was because, you know, I wanted his blessing more than anything. I mean, I wanted him to be in it, but I also wanted to make sure that he was okay with it because, you know, I mean, I'm 24 years old. I think the time I asked Mark, I was like 23 and I thought, you know, I don't want to be this young man who kind of muscles in, writes it and then fucks off. I want to make sure that, you know, you will trust me. And... Mark did give me his blessing and for months and months and months we, you know, were, you know, back and forth. We were trying to agree on who would be suitable, who wasn't suitable, what the parameters of the book would be. So he'd been like a critical friend and he would be like, mm, I don't think this is a good idea. And we would say what was a good idea. And what I think was great was about the the book is that Mark gave it the title, actually the title Revolutionary Acts. Mark came up with that. Um, I would not have been able to come up with that title myself because when it comes to naming things, I'm terrible. Uh, I can do the writing. I can't do the headlining because I'm not an editor. And that quote revolutionary acts comes from a quote by Josephine in 1986, um, which says black men loving black men is the revolutionary act of the eighties. And it spoke to the kind of endurance and resilience and communities of care that were developed um, amongst black men um, during the peak of the AIDS crisis. And although that was, you know, an African-American man, there were obvious resonances for black gay men here. And in fact, a lot of the black British gay men were in conversation with and were meeting with a lot of the African-American men too. I mean, there's um, Essex Hemphill, who was the star, of one of my favorite films, Tongues on Tide, and was an African American gay poet who did a six week tour um, of London. And it's seen as something which really, you know, transformed the landscape here um, for black queer people. And so I, when I say that I want to kind of lift this history out of obscurity, something I want to clarify also is that I think sometimes one thing I didn't love about the way the Guardian kind of editorialized our um, article in the archive was that it said lost black gay Britain. Mm. I always question though, who is it lost to and who are these people lost to? Because within these communities, these stories aren't necessarily lost. You know, people know their history, but mm -hmm. it's just about, you know, who are we, what new platforms and what new stages um, we're showing it to. And which institutions are we, you know, permitting to have access into this, you know, period of history. And I think that it's, not lost in the sense that, you know, it's been, you know, dug up and it was impossible to find. I mean, it wasn't difficult to find. I literally just had to ask Mark. I also wanted to just, you know, clarify some things as well. You know, I said before that, you know, there are lots of assumptions about, you know, the kind of socialising which took place in those years and what was there and what wasn't there. Um, but even outside of the book, and the book's narrative focuses on six different black gay men um, and their lives in Brixton and in areas surrounding Brixton, it looks at, you know, activism and love and also some scandals and drama and some gossip because we all need a bit of that. But there's stories I'm working on outside of it because there's some stories which won't necessarily fit with the parameters of the book, but I still want to tell them. So I'm working on some articles and some projects around that. So um, something that I'm working on, which will be published at a later date, I haven't actually quite written yet, so I won't say too much about it, but it looks at the kind of original Black Pride that was taking place in the 1990s um there was something called the people of color tent and there was a whole story about how that was fought for and organized for and that there was a designated section specifically for um black queer people and what's interesting is that you know people don't know this i remember we posted the photo of um pride um on our instagram and people were like pride was in kennington park we didn't know this or Pride was in Bokra Park. And I think a lot of people think that, you know, UK Black Pride um, set up by Lady Phil launched in 2005. A lot of people think this was the first of its kind. And it wasn't. Um, it absolutely wasn't. And anyone who was there in the 90s would be able to tell you 
that was not the first one. We actually had this and it was amazing. And there's a lot of stories about, you know, its conception, its growth. And some of the story as well, it's not all of a, it's not all a positive story too. You know, some of the story in there, um, I won't reveal too much yet because it'll be in the article. But some of the story is quite sad. And um, one of the men I interviewed for it, Lloyd, is kind of, he is kind of continuing some of the mechanisms of that um, specific event um, in the 90s into a kind of like different project now, which focuses on like, you know, wellness and together and community um, under the banner of the Black Experience, which was what, you know, um, this Pride event was organising as in the 90s. Um, but yeah, just even taking that one seemingly small story and expanding it and asking lots of people and bringing it together, mm -hmm. it's really constructing an entirely new portrait of what life in Britain was like. Um, and it's showing people that, you know, don't make any assumptions about what you think is the first and what you think is new. I mean, I remember that people were talking about this sound system at carnival being the first lgbt sound system and all the elders are like that's rubbish we had dj mel and we would be there grinding on each other and no one would bother us in the 90s so yeah i mean mark knows so yeah it's yeah i i really enjoy kind of I really want to like correct and set the record and say, you know, we actually need to kind of stop almost erasing our own history by mm. kind of trying to claim that, oh, we're doing this for the first time, we're breaking barriers. And it's it's fine. To, I understand people want to break barriers and we want to talk about the kind of contracts that we've had, but also don't erase the uncles, don't erase the aunties, actually look at and ask them about what they were doing in their day because they were doing stuff. And a lot of the stuff that they were doing was better than what we're doing. So we spoke before this and we know your documentary, Safe by a Stranger, is out this evening, Mark. What else can we expect from the both of you this year? So my, my next big project is I'm stepping into you guys' territory and I'm producing my own podcast finally <laughs> after appearing on God knows how many. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm producing a podcast with Broccoli Content, which is coming out in July. Um, and it's telling the story of the, surprise, surprise, the uh, UK HIV epidemic. Mm. But it's taken slightly different perspective um i'm really, really committed to trying to tell the story through unheard voices so i've spent the past six months interviewing countless people women living with hiv trans communities people of color people with hiv younger people but mainly people who live through when i say younger people people who were diagnosed really young mm -hmm. during the epidemic because i wanted to take the story back from the cisgendered white men who we always see represented in the AIDS epidemic. And some of them are included. So it's a big um, series, documentary series with Broccoli coming out in July. I'm incredibly excited. It's a big passion project. And my motivation was with everything that I do, like the archive, was to put us back into the narrative. I mean, I don't have shit coming up other than some articles because I think I've done enough. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm telling myself that you know <laughs> I can rest a bit. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that I can plan more things for next year. But I feel like this year I've got enough on and I've done enough that I'm just taking it slowly for the rest of the year. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be focusing on doing my research for the book and um, kind of getting into structuring it. I mean, I plan to start. I mean, I've written, you know, bits of it because I had to write for the proposal, but I plan to properly start writing it after the summer. And so, yeah, I'm going to be focusing on researching and just doing the kind of the hard graph because I think, you know, everyone sees the announcements and the glossiness of it, but they don't see the behind the scenes, which is, you know, grafting and crying and texting while being like, I don't know if we could do this. Would you, <laughs> would you be annoyed with me if we don't do the book? So... <laughs> So 
so obviously we recorded that episode before Mark's documentary had come out. It came out that day. It came out that day. Um, I did watch it a couple of days, um, a couple of days after, and it was very, very special. I did ugly cry. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, and I messaged Mark just to say your mum is a gem. This mum is so, so lovely. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to Jason's book too. Uh-huh. Yeah, thanks so much for speaking to us. It was it was a real joy. So next up, we wanted to speak to um, UK Black Pride, which is Europe's largest celebration for LGBTQI people of African, Asian, Caribbean, Latin American and Middle Eastern descent. It was founded back in 2005 as a day trip to Southend and it was founded by Lady Phil, who is also the executive director of the Kaleidoscope Trust. UK Black Pride is a safe space to celebrate diverse sexualities, gender identities, cultures, gender expressions and backgrounds. And we spoke to Molly Gober, who is the chair of the Board of Trustees, to find out a little bit more about this year's event. My name is Maud Gober. I am um, a Zimbabwean lesbian and a refugee uh, in the UK. I am also the current chair of the Board of Trustees at UK Black Pride. And uh, in my other day job, I work for Micro Rainbow as a national manager. UK Black Pride is an organization which was set up like many other prides in the world, but centering around LGBTQI plus people of color. So Asian, African, Caribbean, Latin American, um, Pacific people. And it's a celebration of our identities. And also it's a place, a safe place where people have a chance to 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 explore their identities to share to celebrate you know against the background of homophobia biphobia transphobia intersex phobia and also dealing with the structural racism that exists in our communities so it is very much a, a celebration of of us and a celebration of us with our allies so UK Black Pride's never shied away from being bold in its vision and its purpose. I remember 2018's Keep Up The Noise campaign video um, and the Pride itself. I remember it was very, very hot. The festival itself oh, was fantastic. This year's theme, Love and Rage, feels incredibly fitting after the last year. Can you tell us a little bit more about the theme? I think um, looking back from when Lady Few and the team started UK Black Pride 16 years ago, it was against the backdrop of trying to be heard, to be seen and finding uh, that safe space. And 16 years on, you know, the, we, we still have most of the same challenges, except that at the moment we, we, we're managing to create a safe space for us, which is growing from when we had 100 people um, going down south and for the first Pride to um, the last in-person Pride where we had over 10,000 people attending. And um, the, the last Pride, which was online, obviously, uh, because of the lockdown, but we had thousands of people uh, managing to, 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 to attend the event. So it is very much still about fighting for our space and this year's theme is love and rage and this is because we feel that this theme speaks to the feelings of many black lgbtqi people and uh, people of color who are really feeling very angry about the state of the world about being erased the inequality you know it's like raging disappointment and it's just about being tired really uh, 
with this backdrop where our communities are continuing to be overlooked, to be undervalued and to be dis you know to be discarded or pushed to the side. But with all this, we're still full of love, full of um self-love and love for each other. And so this this <laughs> theme brings the two um righteous feelings together. So it's going to be a really beautiful and uh, important celebration where we you know we, we raise the issues and as you probably know UK Black Pride remains very much a political pride. So it is raising these issues, but also celebrating the beauty of who we are and the love that we have and the love that we will continue to have. So what can people expect from this year's event in July and what can listeners do to support UK Black Pride? The first thing people can expect to be entertained. Obviously, there's always entertainment at UK Black Pride, but there's also a lot of learning. Um, they can expect to be challenged. We all have uh, to learn and to be challenged to grow as a community. And we can expect to to celebrate. And those who will attend the event can expect to be seen and to be heard. It's going to take place over three days from Friday, the 2nd of July, until uh, Sunday, the 4th of July. There are lots of activities that are going to be happening in the lead up to that, but yes. Just swapping hats for a moment, you did mention um, in your intro that you are also National Manager at Micro Rainbow. Can you tell us a little bit more about the work that you do there and that Micro Rainbow do? So at Micro Rainbow, we work with um, LGBTQI plus asylum seekers and refugees. And we work mainly in uh, three ways, in supporting those who are homeless or experiencing street homeless. And we also support in, um, in, in reducing isolation, the isolation of asylum seekers, and also in moving on. A lot of people really um, maybe want to understand the, the sort of the why we work in this way. And that's because LGBTI asylum seekers experience a lot of challenges in terms of um, homelessness and in terms of isolation when they come over to the UK is seeking safety. Sometimes they're not always safe in um, in home office provided accommodation and with the background of not having any family here and sometimes being isolated from their own communities, then they experience a lot of um, isolation and living in poverty. It is a, a lot of issues and challenges that we try to, to take with micro brain, but especially um, the homelessness of, of asylum seekers. How can people get in touch and support Micro Rainbow? I think with uh, both our organisation, including UK Black Pride, if you go through to our website, it's uh, ukblackpride.org.uk. And for Micro Rainbow, it's microrainbow.org. I think if you go through our website and you can see how we can support each other there, there's so many uh, different ways you can, you can support us, including when we have... Um, when we open one of our new safe houses, uh, people always uh, support us by buying little things, including duvets, toasters, uh, kettles, and, you know, pots and pans and things like that. Every single person at uh, Black Pride, I think, from one at the moment is a volunteer. We, we, we've grown at the back of people offering us their skills, their talent and supporting us to, to, to shape the organization. And that's the same with Micro Rainbow. We 
do rely on the support of volunteers, you know, people who host workshops for social inclusion for asylum seekers, um, people who support us with employability workshops in helping people move on once they're granted status in the UK. So apart from, you know, the financial support, even allyship or in these spaces where we have so much racism going on, people challenging ignorance that helps if somebody's ignorant about black queer issues or ignorant of asylum seekers, it's important to always challenge those things apart from obviously um, being present and knowing the issues, educating ourselves, learning and continually uh, challenging ourselves. So all those things help allyship, allies and champions. Um, amplifying our voices in the same way you guys do, uh, you know, to always ask to say how can we help, uh, and you know, what is this issue about? So that that all that helps. So as Maud mentioned, uh, she's the national manager of Micro Rainbow who provide safe housing to LGBTQI asylum seekers and refugees. They also facilitate access to employment, volunteering, training and education, and provide social inclusion activities to reduce the extreme isolation faced by LGBTQI people. One of the other amazing things that we've been able to do with Joe Malone is to advise on a number of charities that they will be supporting across the month of June to commemorate Pride Month. All of these charities are designed to nurture the most vulnerable members of the community and continue to raise awareness of the importance of looking after and speaking openly about mental health. So if you would like to check out anything that we spoke about this episode on Instagram, it's black and gay back in the day. Make sure you give them a follow. I'm sure there's lots of amazing things coming up this Pride Month. For more information about UK Black Pride, you can go to ukblackpride.org.uk and for Micro Rainbow, you can go to microrainbow.org. Now, there's one little cheeky thing that we might want to ask for, which is... Cheeky, cheeky. Very cheeky. I mean, we only came back in December, obviously, and unfortunately, we didn't have enough episodes out to be able to submit ourselves for the British Podcast Awards. However, we've just realised and just noticed that there's a listener vote section, and you can actually vote for us if you are so inclined. So you Mm -hmm. can go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and you just type in bottoming select it and then input your name and email address and you can vote for us the more votes we get the better and there's actually a chance of us winning some sort of award which would be so sick Mm -hmm. so yeah very simple to do so britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote um as usual if you're not already, give us a follow Bottoming Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. There'll be lots of content there all throughout the month, um, including, of course, the Essential Pride playlist curated by me. <laughs> you're impossible. There will be lots of resources, um, links to the episode, links to the links, links to the links to the <laughs> links that we have mentioned um, in this episode on our website, yeah. bottomingpodcast.com. And if you don't mind... The usual request, if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give us a wee review, 
and a little star rating that'd mm-hmm. be really really much appreciated mm-hmm. we have noticed we've been getting a, a couple more since we've been in apple podcast new and noteworthy section mm-hmm. hello. um hello, hello there listening now so we'll take a couple of seconds and yeah we'd really really appreciate it because it does make a difference mm-hmm. it really does make a difference mm-hmm. if anyone wants to leave a review and just says you're doing amazing sweetie oh that would be that would be a gag that would be a joke we'd love that yes ladies <laughs> on that note we will see you next wednesday yeah, with Miss Craggs. Mm-hmm. Miss Charlie Craggs. If you're nasty. And Transpride. Yeah. You are doing amazing, sweetie. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.